I'm, I'm still getting over this image of uh, Deepu roaming around, like, <laughs> like uh, <laughs> roaming around. Like, I, I'm interested in how people roam around in behavioral health in, in Texas. I, I wonder if there's a horse involved. Or <laughs> oh, I, did, anyway. I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> I just love it. It's, it's great. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. This is the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association's official podcast, the Integrated Care Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm joined today by my partners in crime here, the podcast team, uh, Jeffrey and Deepu. I'll give them a chance to introduce themselves here in a moment. But first, I just want to thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. This is our first podcast of 2019. Uh, We've had a year of podcasting under our belt. So you would think we have this all perfectly sort of uh, figured out, and we mostly do, but uh, you know, <laughs> we, have our, we have our adventures every day. Uh, but thank you so much for hanging with us and for listening, for your feedback, and for the inspiration. Uh, we get the inspiration for our podcasts from you, our listeners, uh, the kind of things that we talk with you about via email from the CFHA listserv. Uh, from the great work that you're doing all over the country to um, provide whole person care to uh, oftentimes to the neediest patients um, in the farthest corners of the United States. So we are grateful. So without further ado, uh, Deepu, Jeffrey, introduce yourselves. Deepu, you go first. All right. After two missed episodes, I am back in the beginning of 2019 to join the team. I'm very grateful to be here. There is a flurry of activities uh, around me. Uh, We are gearing up for a submission on Monday, but I needed to find my moment of Zen and connection. And here I am on the podcast. I'm sure my team is not happy that I'm missing from the action, but I needed to be here with uh, my team to make sure that I get my mental health check in and connection in. So I'm here. Good morning. Very good. And we'll, uh, we, you know, we're missing one of our team members, Grace, uh, who, who texted just just prior to our recording uh, time, and my suspicion is that the reason she wasn't able to be on is because she's applying for the same grant. So we'll talk about that here in a second, because part of yes. what I was looking forward to this morning was actually hearing from Grace and how she's doing with the uh, with the with the uh, grant application. But we'll we'll talk about that in a second. Jeffrey, say hello to all the folks out there. Hey, everybody! I'm so happy to be here, Jeffrey Ring. I'm a health psychologist with. Health Management Associates. Uh, I work in uh, sort of coaching and support for behavioral health integration and for practitioner wellness and vitality. Do a lot of work with uh, leadership and high-functioning teams. Um, I I just want to say I'm here today with um, extraordinary gratitude just for medical science. We live with my mother-in-law, Eve, and she uh, unfortunately has some pretty bad cancer. She was put on hospice. She started some, just before hospice, she started some immunosuppressive medications She's like off hospice, like she still has cancer, but she is not having the symptoms that she had. It is incredible. She joined us for the theater. We went to the gardens. We had lunch. It's really wow. um, an extraordinary shift of um, of just what is happening in her body. That sort of pain and discomfort has just seemed to disappear. So anyway, much gratitude for uh, for her hanging with us for uh, the journey. That's amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's, uh, yeah, good news. Good news for sure. So, Deepu, you are joining us from the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. Yes. 
Jeffrey, where are you exactly today? I'm in uh, Riverside in the Inland Empire. We're working on a large initiative, Health Homes, California Health Homes, uh, That's right. trying to improve care for complex patients. And again, just to set the stage, I'm coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, so we, we really are covering sort of the corners of the United States here. <laughs> and like I said, uh, Grace would usually join us. Amber Gordon uh, may also be joining us as the podcast goes. She had a meeting that ran late as well. Um, so we are really mim mimicking real life here as far as what life looks like for folks in integrated care. Um, we talked with Grace during our planning meeting last week and uh, actually spent like half the planning meeting just talking about her grant application, which it turns out Deepu is also doing. And what was what was interesting about it, why, why we decided to talk about it, was because there's a lot of folks out there submitting grants in January. Uh, they come out at different times of the year, but this is one of those times when people will be submitting things like that. And uh, just sort of how the, the challenge of submitting a grant when you're not a professional grant writer. And uh, for Grace, this was her first uh, ever grant application. And in fact, it was her, her clinic's first ever grant application. Um, so Deepu, it, just give us a quick thumbnail of the grant what makes what what the challenge is with regard to applying for this grant, um, and maybe a little bit of what you hope to get out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the grant is uh, through HRSA, and it's called the Primary Care Training Enhancement Initiative, and it's particularly focused on integrated uh, behavioral health and the primary care provider. And the goal is to enhance IBH-related skills for PCPs, and they're particularly targeting people in training, um, uh, residents, physician assistants, nurse practitioners. Of course, the grant can also be targeted at practicing community physicians with the goal is to improve their overall knowledge of integrated behavioral health. The second thread line in that is a big focus on opioid use disorders and substance use disorders and increasing access to medication-assisted treatment. And so that's a big component to that. And the third uh, is clinician wellness or physician wellness or provider wellness. Um, so that's the three main components. At UTRGV, what we hope to really get is a large penetration into our primary care training tracks across the university, uh, just to make sure that our NPs, our PAs, our family internal uh, OB, all of these residents in training can get exposure to um, integrated behavioral health uh, in terms of skills and then give them some kind of rotational experience uh, through peer learning networks, simulation, um, mixed reality simulation uh, methods, and through clinical rotations with BHCs. Um, so we're, we're hoping that we can create a workforce solution here uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. So what's the writing been like? The strange thing about the writing is the main argument that you make is, uh, unfortunately, is not the chunk of what you submit. There's a 65-page uh, limit. Uh, anything over, anything uh, beyond that, they will not even consider it. It has to be 12-point font, Times New Roman or Arial. They have very few choices. Um, and then the tables have to be in a certain format. And then majority of the stuff is institutional documents, uh, like your institution's capacity to carry things. So I feel like I've gone on probably 25, 30 meetings across campus just to organize uh, the different documents and letters of agreements and supports that we need. Oof. 
So writing, great. You know, it's great fun when you really had to make your argument. Uh, but that's, our, I think we calculated that our writing and our work plan and methods is probably 20 pages of the 65-page document. And and all of us know that 20 pages is never enough to sell the story. <laughs> that we so. It sounds like fun, huh, Jeffrey? Uh, I am wishing you all great success. <laughs> that, would, that sounds like an extraordinary... If I were the funder, I, you'd have the money already. Deepu, I like what you're talking about. Yeah, I will nominate you for HRSA. I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll get a warm coat and move east. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, so that, that grant, as of the recording of this podcast, is due in a couple Monday. of days, correct? Monday, yeah, which is just about... Uh, three days away so uh grace is more than likely hard at work on that on the finishing touches of all that and you're absolutely right you know the grant writing experience is is a lot less about writing than about knowing how to follow the rules knowing how to figure out what the funders really want to hear and being able to address that and then working with your institution right to get all the ducks in a row um and that's that's really challenging so, yeah, we wish you the best of luck and we'll, you know, hear what happens with your and Grace's submissions. Yeah, um, it's really about matching the aspirations of what the, the sort of like the federal side wants with the realities mm-hmm. of what your institution and region is like. Right. And, you know, so. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, with that aside, let's jump right into our news and notes. All right. My news item for today is uh, a couple of uh, pieces related to CFHA. One is a really important one for those of you out there with great stories to tell uh, about integrated care, and that is the opportunity to submit a proposal for the conference in uh, Denver in October. Our annual conference is, uh, generally speaking, held in the fall of each year. This year it is in Denver, Colorado, a great spot right down in the capital. And our call for proposals is open February 1st. So you can check out our website, integratedcareconference.com, for the link to submit as of February 1st. You can go there right now just to read up information about what we're looking for in the proposals. Um, But if you have a great story to tell, particularly one that centers around workforce development, which is going to be the theme of our conference this year, uh, which is really what uh, Deepu's grant, for example, is about. Um, that'll be a story that he'll have to tell in a few years as that grant comes to fruition when it gets funded, because I'm positive it will be. When it uh, gets funded. That's right. So please uh, consider t- sharing your story with the world uh, by submitting a proposal uh, to CFHA. Again, that's integratedcareconference.com. The other shout-out I want to give as part of the news and notes here and a tease along with it really is uh, our integrated care news site where our or where this podcast is housed as well. But there's some other items on there that caught my attention in the last week or so, and that's related to our blogs. And we have a new new blog structure, new blog team. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, a, a couple of the lines, the opening lines of, of Katie Snow's recent blog post there, uh, just as a teaser. And this will kind of entice you to go on the site and uh, read up some more. So this is uh, Katie Snow, a behavioral health consultant, and the title of her blog post is 
the unspoken role of the behavioral health consultant, six tips for navigating colleague mental health needs. So here's what Katie writes uh, very poignantly. It usually looks something like this. A face I know well pops into my office door. Another staff member in the clinic where I spend my days as a behavioral health consultant. This face lacks the bright, just popping in to say hi or frazzled, we need you right now, a patient is in crisis look. It is more cautious, mingled with a sad or hopeful furrowed brow. A voice soon follows, starting with an attempt at an upbeat, can I ask you a question? And a pause, and then in a softer, sometimes shakier voice, it isn't about work. So I'll uh, pause it there, but for anyone who's worked in integrated care, you've had this situation at some point or another in your career where a fellow staff member comes and asks for help. And that brings with it a whole host of issues, questions, concerns, and opportunities. So I'll leave it there, but uh, go on integratedcarenews.com, read up Katie Snow's post, um, and uh, yeah, let us know what you think. So that's my news and note item. Jeffrey, what's your news item for, for this month? Well, it's very interesting because my um, I have two, two, two items. But the first one has to do with um, work, mental health at work, actually linked to yours. Um, <laughs> right. Prince, um, this comes out of England, the United Kingdom. Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, um, is going to unveil a brand new project called Mental Health at Work. And um, it's go, it, it comes in the sort of uh, to, to really address this harsh reality there that they found that 48% of United Kingdom employees have experienced mental health problems uh, in their in their current job. Um, and then we, we, we know that sort of similarly in the in the United States, um, it, it's a big problem. Um, it's a, and so anyway, I just thought that was really interesting that there's going to be some real um, true leadership uh, behind that initiative. Um, and it'll be interesting to watch. Um, and it will be interesting to um, sort of see uh, if, in fact, some of what they do well over there, assuming they're successful, can travel uh, across the pond uh, to, to all of us. So my, my second um, uh, piece of news um, is, uh, you know, we're, we're recording now, um, but just yesterday, that 23rd of January, was um, International Integrative Health Day. So not integrated, but integrative health day. And um why don't we get an integrated healthcare international day? We, we need one, but um, we can certainly celebrate the integrative health uh, day um, whose goal was, is to inspire worldwide dialogue and education and collaboration, research initiatives and programming about medicine and healthcare. That's, that's, this will sound familiar, patient-centered, economically and environmentally sustainable and open to integrating a wide variety of care options. So actually, integrated behavioral health care can certainly be celebrated, I think, on Integrative International Health Day. Um, I, um, I, I will um, put in the show notes the, um, the, the webpage from the uh, University of California, Davis. Um, they, they highlight some key principles behind integrative health medicine about a close partnership between patient and practitioner, a blend of conventional, traditional, and lifestyle-related methods, Three, an emphasis on natural, non-invasive treatments whenever possible. Sounding familiar, resonant, right? Four, mm -hmm. um, a thorough consideration of all factors that influence health, wellness, and disease, including body and mind and spirit and community. And then finally, promoting health and, uh, and preventing illness by adapting a 
health-promoting lifestyle. So um, uh, well worth celebrating. And by the way, on that webpage, there's a recipe for rainbow spring rolls with ginger peanut sauce, which is not a bad <laughs> way to celebrate <laughs> a healthy lifestyle as well. So um, All right. anyway, I think yeah, we can fit under awesome. that umbrella. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And for the, for the newbies out there, because we do get a lot of people confusing integrative and integrated. Uh, they're both really awesome things, uh, but they are different things. <laughs> Integrative really has to do with uh, incorporating non-traditional, often non-traditional uh, Western medicine into um, uh, uh, standard uh, medical care. Uh, so it's a different sort of integration of methods um, into medical care. Uh, and then integrated care involves really integrating all the psychosocial components of uh, humanity into medical care so uh which often leads us to uh being open to integrative approaches uh because we recognize the limitations of western medicine so uh yeah just quite point of clarification there deepu your news and note for this month mine is very linked to what both of you shared. Uh, there is an article that came out. It, I think it's in. Uh, it, I think it released like two, three days ago on analysis of family medicine, and the title is "Practice Capacity to Address Patient Social Needs and Physician Satisfaction and Perceived Quality of Care." The main argument that they uh, make is that out of 890 primary care physicians. Um, they looked at the clinics that they work in and the clinic's capacity to address patient social needs and how that related to physician satisfaction, stress, and perceived medical care quality that they've uh, provided. And I know one of the big things that always comes is financing uh, different aspects of integrated care. And uh, they make a big statement, which I thought would, would be relevant to our community of listeners says clinic capacity to address patient social needs was associated with higher physician job satisfaction and perception that patient medical care has recently improved. Similar physici similarly, physicians reporting that care coordination, which is facilitating connection with social community resources, was easy, were more likely to endorse higher job satisfaction. These findings suggest that return on investment of activities related to patients Socioeconomic needs may extend beyond patient health and use of care to clinician satisfaction, closely tied with clinician burnout and retention. So health systems should consider clinician impacts when calculating costs and benefits of clinical team-based activities. So there is some data, not that we need a data, but there is the data. There you go. There you go. And uh, we had a discussion prior because Deepu was not sure about the pronunciation of that first word. And you, you avoided sure. falling into the trap of calling the annals of family medicine something else, right? which we won't mention because this is a clean <laughs> podcast. Although, although it's it a family-friendly show here. Yeah, it's family-friendly. It's an anatomical term, but it's a different way of saying annals of family medicine. We'll just leave it there. That is correct. <laughs> Good job, Deepu. All right. Uh, before we jump into our main topic, let's take a break. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals 
but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's Technical Assistance Services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. And we're back. Thanks again for joining us. This is the Integrated Care Podcast. And our topic for today is, as usual, drawn from uh, one of the conversations that we uh, have had on our listserv, and it's really a recurring conversation. And so we thought it would be worth to take some time to, to unpack the conversation here for a few minutes. And that is the question that's often asked. When you're integrating care, um, what should your ratio be between behavioral health providers and medical providers? Sounds like a simple question, and yet it gets asked over and over again, and the answers are often quite nuanced and complex. So I'm going to throw this out here first to you guys. So someone comes to you and asks, you know, well, what should your ratio be of behavioral health providers to medical providers? What are, what's, what are the first considerations that you sort of talk a person through? Well, you know, um, Neftali, it's, um, it's, the answer isn't always determined on by how many patients you are, how large the panel size is, or what the degree of sort of behavioral health challenges there are in that population. It's usually decided by what resources are available. So I would love to have the luxury of, you know, being able to sort of say, you know, a certain amount. You guys need eight full-time behavioral health people in this very busy primary care clinic. But the truth is that um, this is still a, a growth industry, and uh, I think it's more likely determined by what resources you have. When I worked at uh, the Family Medicine Residency in White Memorial in East Los Angeles, um, we had, you know, 21 residents and probably about seven six or seven full-time faculty physicians in our clinic, lots and lots of patients in a way underserved, challenged community. And there was myself and a, and a um, social worker. Um, and we had our limited availability because we had a lot of teaching responsibilities and other kinds of things pulling at us. Um, so uh, whatever the ratios are supposed to be, two for that clinic was far from satisfactory. Yeah, so absolutely true. I'm glad you started there, Jeffrey, because I, I often remind people that your talent pool is in large part going to drive um, how you're going to arrange your services, right? Um, because you can't you know, have an unrealistic expectation of what you can do if you don't have the right talent on board or have the access to the right talent on board. So yes, that is absolutely one other consideration. So Deepu, what other considerations are you thinking when you're trying to coach someone and say, hey, this is what you should be thinking about. Yeah, I think uh, Jeffrey sort of alluded to this. Uh, I've learned this the hard way, baptism by fire, as uh, implementing uh, the PCBH model here. I think uh, one is, you know, what is what does your clinic look like? Where are you located? Are you an FQHC? Uh, what is your population? So those are just sort of like the um, 
objective metrics that you can sort of take into consideration. But I almost uh, have been much more curious in the past few years about the cultural and environmental conditions of the clinic that is ready and primed for a full force integrated behavioral health solution to their patient care issue. So two things that I'm always concerned about is what is the adoption rate? Now, once a behavioral health consultant or the BH provider is in clinic, um, what's the test rate, right? What's happening to their utilization? How often are they involved in care? Are they just being used for mental health stuff like your depression and anxiety? And, you know, when things like headaches and other things come up, are physicians and nurses and uh, medical assistants just not thinking about the new team member? Um, and then the other thing is with adoption is uh, maintenance. So once you sort of put somebody in there, how well are they maintaining a primary care sort of uh, commitment? Uh, so are there practice drifts and other things? So I think about both of those things, and I almost uh, advise or in, infuse uh, teams where I've had the privilege of helping them think about this, is to have one provider and see how the uptake is and, and focus on some data for the next few months uh, and then see if that's a solution that they still want to move forward with. Yeah, uh, great advice. Uh, and, and a very practical way in which that has worked out recently in the landscape is, uh, as many people know, a lot of uh, money has been poured into uh, particularly community health centers. And so it's been great, uh, a stark contrast to when I was in a community health center world in, for the last 17 years where we, we didn't have, we had some funding, but it wasn't terribly robust. Um, but now there's a lot of money in, being put in. And so people have the capacity to hire a lot more people. But to your point, Deepu, their program is not yet ready to sustain uh, or have a high enough utilization for those folks. So I think it is an absolutely important piece to understand what stage of program development you are in, test it out from a data standpoint to make right. sure that you're maximizing uh, the efficiency of each of your uh, behavioral providers and utilizing them well. And as you pointed out, learning what they're being utilized for. So tracking things like what diagnosis codes um, uh, they're seeing patients for so that they can so you can get a sense of where your growth area might be. Maybe you do have all, as is typical, depression, anxiety, sort of referral consults being provided to the behavioral professional. Um, and then you know then that your growth area are the health behavior change areas, things like um, assisting with diabetes management, uh, folks with other sort of chronic illnesses, or even other populations like pediatrics, which might be growth areas in your particular population. So absolutely, those are two crucial pieces that people don't often think about when they're just looking for a particular number. Now, you alluded to something else, Deepu, which is the type of model that you're working under, right? Because you can have a behavioral provider integrated in a variety of different ways, Correct. each which have different purposes and each which would have different ratios that would be optimal for those purposes, right? Right. So... Um, Maybe you guys can you can talk a little bit about starting with you, Deepu, uh, what the different sort of models might look like um, from sort of just co-located to fully integrated, and and how does that affect ratio then? 
Right. And I, actually, as you were saying uh, the, the few lines that you just said, I was thinking about the six levels of integration, which is sort of the same Sahursa. And I think if you scroll down, you sort of begin to see at level five and six, there are different expectations of how the communication and uh, the coordination and collaboration sort of goes. So if you're sort of like a co-located, coordinated kind of model, and you're looking at the uh, expectation on the behavioral health provider, uh, they are part of the team, but they're not in the team. Like They're not roaming around with you as a PCP or a nurse practitioner and sort of giving you on-demand help. So the referrals are managed externally. The, the, the patients may still get much quicker access, but it may still be facilitated by a separate appointment and things like that. So your job is really facilitating those referrals, seeing the patients and giving some kind of feedback. And that communication can be electronic, doesn't need to be facilitated in person kind of things. And the other thing I think about is, you know, what is your clinic's vision for integrating behavioral health? Are you saying that we have a commitment to create a culture of whole health and we want to make sure that every patient gets a biopsychosocial kind of look uh, when they come into our clinic? And we really don't distinguish between uh, mental health and physical health. And so we think a BHC can be helpful in a whole range of things. And that, if that's your perspective, it really begins to defer what you do with that person and what their role looks like for your care team. Versus if you're sort of saying, we have like 10% of our population is at really high risk and they're really complex. And I think Jeffrey can speak to this a lot more uh, with practical experience. But, and we want to say, we want to create a specialized team that's just going to look at the 10% that really needs to uh, get this extra help or there's additional ways to improve their quality of life, which can lead to better uh, outcomes for the patient, for the clinic, um, and for the health system in general. And so then that, you know, you, your BHC to PCP ratio begins to look very differently. And if you're just a coordinated sort of model, you're the mental health provider is separate and you get your traditional referrals and the demand on you is not that high. Um, as compared to if you're uh, literally roaming around with your colleagues in clinic. Yep, great explication. And a good bridge over to Jeffrey's expertise in the area of complex patients. So one of the pieces to this puzzle, Jeffrey, of course, is what kind of population you serve and then what model you're going to use to hit the, the key sort of goals that you have with that particular population. So maybe you can speak to, say, when you're dealing with a complex patient population, what that does with regard to how you arrange your services um, so that you can meet the needs of, of that uh, complexity. Um, I'm, I'm still getting over this image of uh, Deepu roaming around, like, like <laughs> on, uh, <laughs> roaming around. Like, I, I'm interested in how people roam around in behavioral health in, in Texas. I, I wonder if there's a horse involved. Or, oh, <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. I just love it. It's, it's great. Roaming Cowboy around. Deepu, but it's a beautiful yeah. image. It's about being um, it's about being present and uh, and connecting. Anyway, all right. So to, to your question, Deepu Deepu moses around the question. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I can tell you a little bit about the story of the project we're working now on now here in the Inland Empire. This is um, California Health Homes. So this is a really beautiful mix of funds, federal and state, uh, and a state um, program um, where health plans 
sign up to be health home um, sort of involved or engaged. And so what it means for the Inland Empire is that the state of California sends these lists um, of patients that the state is worried about that are um, having a lot of utilization, a lot of cost, a lot of hospitalization, um, maybe not connected to, to sort of ongoing primary uh, health care. So what we've done here is um, we've developed these teams of four people, a behavioral health clinician, a uh, nurse care manager, a care coordinator, and a community health worker. Four people full-time working, and they work beautifully together in high-functioning teams, and they take care of 200 patients. Of the 200 patients, I would say a third of them are what we call tier one, super high complex, super expensive, super disconnected, um, then um, another third of tier two and another third of tier three. And the expectation is that tier one patients receive a touch either live or by phone every week. Tier two patients receive a touch every other week, live or by phone. And the third, tier three, um, once a month, um, at, at a minimum. Of course, patients have you know, other, other needs. So um, it's been really uh, interesting to um, sort of help support these teams to be successful in this work. It's complicated. There's outreach, there's uh, engagement, there is uh, comprehensive history taking, and then there are the touches if, in fact, the patient agrees to participate. And on, on, on top of all of that, Many of the patients that are ending up on the state list have incredible challenges such as um, home instability or lack of a place to live. So our superpower teams are working outside of the box, meeting folks in the streets, in cafes, um, out and about, and trying to do what great teams do in this field, help them solve as many of their life problems as they can, and to through loving connected, relationship-centered care to um, build patient self-management. And so this is the Great Health Homes Experiment in California. We just started January 1st, but I, I will say my teams are going gangbusters. And the um, uptake, which we kind of worried about, the, the uptake of patients agreeing to participate has been huge and positive. And I guess not surprisingly, if you're sick and depressed and uh, distraught, and isolated, if a voice comes into the phone and says, we are here to help and we work closely with your physician and what do you need? People say yes. So more to come on this, but I hope that's a helpful guide, at least to what the yeah. ratios are in this project. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So it's a great explication of how the design and the intent and end goals of your approach uh, dictate in large part um, with all these other factors that we've talked about, the stage of development of your program, uh, et cetera, what kind of ratios you're going to have. So in your case, it's four to 200. If mm -hmm. you're talking about uh, a design like DPUs where you have a PCBH model, you're going to be likely have a much larger ratio. Of, so it's not going to be one. It'll be for every BHC, you might have upwards of, uh, potentially six to even 1,200 patients that they might be um, sort of, uh, again, they're not touching each of these 1,200 patients, but if there's 1,200 patients on the provider's panel, they and the provider are essentially responsible for those 1,200 patients. So, and the reason is simply because that's the design, that's the intent of that model to be 
uh, supportive to the primary care provider and have the accessibility for uh, someone like Deepu to roam around and provide support on the go um, at the point of care for the visit. So all of these factors are really, really important factors. I want to touch on two more quick factors here that you guys can comment on, which a lot of people don't take into account with regard to ratios. One of them is simply the layout of a clinic, right? Because you could actually statistically look at a ratio, but if your clinic is cut up, structurally speaking, uh, architecturally speaking, into, say, a bunch of disconnected pods, for example, it really becomes very difficult for a behavioral health professional to cover all of those pods and be visible and available to all of them, right? And so then isn't that going to affect the way things work? What do you think, Deepu? Yes. I, when I was in uh, North Carolina in Fayetteville I, uh, doing my training, it was four, I think we had four pods and they were all distinct. It's in the same clinic, but very distinct. And we also had a infectious disease clinic that was uh, staffed by a physician that came a couple of times a week that was outside of the clinic in the same parking lot. Uh, so that really does affect um, how you're perceived and, and what your utilization rate is going to be. So a couple of things that we did to come around. So even we had uh, say two FTEs, two BHCs, and then a 0.5 BHC who was sort of the director of the program, uh, who, who was our, uh, he was at uh, Fayetteville with me, our beloved Matt Martin, who was sort of my uh, oh, yeah. gr guru in entering this field. Um, so we had, we carried pagers. So pagers went off whenever we were needed. The other thing that we did was go from uh, pod to pod in the, in the morning, looked at the patient list that's coming and note next to every patient saying BH can be involved. Uh, and then if we were not being uh, consulted for something, we would go around the pod to let, let them know, hey, we're still here. Is there anybody that's running late? Can we step in on someone? Can we help the MA with something? Uh, so we were utilized pretty well, even though it was a, I think we had 18 residents uh, about six faculty, um, and we were busy uh, a whole lot of the times uh, because we didn't meet the ratio, but what we did in our role varied uh, based on um, yeah. how we met the needs of the population. Yeah, absolutely. Architecture will make you hustle if it's not well laid out, and so right. you have to do a lot of walking around as a behavioral health consultant to make that work. But it may be to that you decide you know, it's just too hard to make it work, and then you have to have additional staffing just to make sure you're outfitting each of the pods, for example, if your right. architecture is really that bad. And I've certainly been in clinics like that where I say, you know what, even though you don't have the volume necessarily from a patient standpoint, in order to meet the need, you're going to have to have be it, you know, FTEs at each of the pods in order to make right. that work. So that's going to affect your ratios. Last but not least here, I know we're running out of time here. Right. Last Naftali, I oh, just sorry, want to say ahead. really quick. Yes. Yeah, I, I heard an incredible presentation. Um, this was by uh, Dr. Eric Burko. He's a psychologist at Metro Health, I believe, maybe in, um, in, in Ohio. He uh, has a, this is a, so impressive. He has a wealth of behavioral health resources, at least in the presentation that I heard. Like all of these students who actually sit in their own pod. And what it allows is for this incredible capacity for people to be available for crises and issues as they come but also enough people to like be seeing patients and return patients. And if one person sort of 
takes on a crisis and goes off to work with someone, there's still like more behavioral health people there and available, like on call and accessible. And um, wow, only if, right, we had that kind of um, uh, flood of model resources um, everywhere. I, I was so impressed by his work and uh, by, by that presentation and, and, and the smart use of trainees, actually, um, mm -hmm. to expand the, um, the, the workforce capacity for behavioral health. Yeah, that's uh, uh, and actually, Jeffrey, that brings up another point, which is, you know, you can you can sort of expand incrementally your FTEs using right. st students. Um, it's not going to be a full FTE, and that's important for people to understand. <laughs> you get a student, and you think, oh, I've got another FTE. No, <laughs> there's a lot of work involved, and they're not going to be as efficient as a seasoned professional. So they might be a point two to point five type FTE. Uh, equivalent, right? So great point. The last piece I'll bring up as a, as a factor is simply access in the community, right? So, so what kind of access your patients have in the community also dictates the nature of your service, which dictates your ratios of your services. Most of the communities that I've been in do not have great access to mental health care, which is why integrated care exists to begin with, or why the program that I'm working with there exists. Um, but it's just one of the other factors to consider. If you, if you happen to live in a community that has super great access to mental health care in the community, you may not need to have as many FTEs in your clinic because obviously you can, you know, uh, for many folks, it can be a quick touch and a referral. In most cases, however, um, that's not the case. And so you have to sort of understand what are the resources that are out there and what are we going to have to build sort of in-house here um, in an integrated fashion. So anyway, all that to say, it's a lot more complicated, and I know that there may be listeners who are like, man, I just want a number. I just, give me a number. <laughs> and, you know, what I generally ballpark people say, you know, if you're running a PCBH model, you're going to have more of a one to kind of four medical providers. That's the ratio that I generally use. Um, but all the caveats of our conversation today, please take that into consideration because, you may not be running a PCBH model. And so your, your ratio is going to look very, very different. What you need to do, however, is really think very deeply about your goals and the population that you're targeting when you're developing these ratios. And as we've talked about, understand the progression of your program so you don't have a bunch of people sitting around doing nothing. I think there's probably nothing more demoralizing than having a team that's not well-functioning because it's not really uh, set up to succeed. So... The other side of that, too, actually, I, I love Deepu's um, idea about progression, right? You start with one and see how it goes and build. But going back to my news item about workplace wellness, that one person who begins um, needs to be able to assertively set some boundaries because um, there may be an incredible pent-up demand and need, um, as well as uninformed colleagues who are sending the wrong kinds of cases. Um, and so... Um, we can't lose that, you know, that sort of uh, pioneering individual um, to um, burn out and crash because there hasn't been true preparation and, uh, and, and thoughtful integration in, in the clinic climate. Absolutely. Yeah. In that case, you'd have to do what, what's called in the world of uh, lean startup. You have to do a pivot. Right. Yeah. At that point, you realize, hey, we've got to pivot to expand because obviously the pent up demand is too big for this pioneer to take on themselves. Absolutely. Whenever you're roaming with through pods, you should always pivot. <laughs> that is correct. 
That's what I take from our conversation today. That's great. That's great. All right. Well, let's transition now to a an interview, and it dovetails here with some of our conversation because there's lots of ways that people have very creatively attempted to fill this um, need for whole person care. And most of the folks that have done this in the last 20 years have been in community settings, nonprofit settings, um, working in underserved populations, either in the Department of Defense, Veterans Administration, community mental health centers, or community health centers. However, there are some enterprising folks who are taking this into the private sector as well. And uh, Deepu had a conversation with one of our CFHA members who's doing just this in Chicago, Illinois. So Deepu, lead us in into the interview. Absolutely. So Boris is a, a good friend that I met and connected with at CFHA. Uh, we had some early conversations with them through the listserv, actually. And we were really curious as to what they were doing in Chicago because it is a private practice kind of model of integrating behavioral health or psychologists or mental health providers into uh, primary care settings. We are typically used to sort of hearing about behavioral health consultants or providers hired by a clinic and they're owned, uh, their employment is sort of owned by the clinic and they're fully integrated. Boris and his team, they do something different and unique. And I thought it was a story worth focusing on and allowing others to hear and learn from. Excellent. Here's uh, Deepu's interview with Boris. Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening to wherever you're listening to our podcast from. This is a live recording with uh, an interview that's happening in Rochester, New York at the annual CFHA conference. I have with me Dr. Boris Todorov, and we are going to talk about something very interesting today because uh, a few months ago we had a question from Boris on the listserv about a particular challenge that he faced. And out of that question, I realized, wow, this guy's doing something very different and not embedded in a clinic, but they are part of this group of uh, primary care psychologists who are private practice, mm -hmm. and then they partner mm -hmm. with medical groups to sort of give BATs to go to their clinic. And I, I thought that was a very innovative model. But before I get into that, I'm gonna let Boris say hello Boris, when you say hello, tell us a little bit about where you are right now, uh, a little bit about your training and your experience, uh, like what got you into integrative behavioral health. Yeah, hello there. It's, uh, it's, it's super nice to be here. Thank you for uh, taking the time to interview me. And thank you to, wonder, to the wonderful people at CFHA who threw this great, great, great conference. It's, it's really awesome to be here. Yeah. So thanks for that. Uh, my name is Dr. Boris Todorov. Um, I'm uh, based in uh, Chicago, Illinois. I'm part of uh, a medium-sized private practice. We're called Primary Care Psychology Associates. And uh, I got my PhD from Ohio University. And I did my postdoc at uh, a community mental health agency in Southeast Ohio. It's actually kind of where I started my interest in uh, integrated care, you know, uh, I was part of uh, a PhD program that was, it was a health program. It was a health clinical uh, okay. psychology program. But um, when I was going through it, uh, the, the emphasis was on specialization. Okay. You got to be part of a, a cardio clinic, of an HIV program. Uh, my specialty was in migraines okay. uh, and their management. And I always felt a little bit confined. Right. By, by all of that, uh, I, I really like the 
clinical side of psychology. I like to be able to, to work with a very wide range of patients. Right. Um, and I just did not know that you could do that in primary care because nobody told me. Right, right, uh, right. And I was kind of getting ready to be just a community psychologist. Right. Um, until uh, right before I started my postdoc, uh, the, the, the CEO of the Community Mental Health Agency told me, oh, by the way, you, when you start, you'll be working under supervision with somebody who is right now developing a grant uh, that will uh, bring uh, behavioral health and medicine integration uh, between our agency and the hospital system in uh, rural Ohio. That was so, like your dream come true. You didn't even know you wanted that. Well, it was it was a surprise. And I said, okay, let's let's roll with it. And uh, um, we were very fortunate to, to get a grant from the Osteopathic Heritage Foundation in Nelsonville, Ohio, uh, to help us integrate the, the community mental health agency with one uh, internal medicine clinic uh, through Holzer Health System. It's a, it's a medium-sized health system in West Virginia and Ohio. And then as we were in the planning stages of that, my supervisor left. Oh, okay. Uh, so my CEO said, okay, now, now you're running it. Uh, so I, I became the, the person who was running that program. So uh, for the next year and a half, we spent uh, uh, building up the program, uh, recruiting staff, uh, training the staff, uh, program development, and then wow. implementation. So you, you pretty much had to learn on the job. It was almost like baptism by fire. I, I didn't. Uh, I mean, again, a lot of credit goes to uh, the wonderful people at Cherokee Health Systems in Tennessee. So right. I, I took uh, that was uh, probably the, the most essential uh, training that I did before um, I was ready to, to call myself a behavioral health, health consultant. consultant. So, so once you finish your postdoc, that was your postdoctoral mm-hmm. training, how long was that? So that was a year, and then I spent another year basically running that running uh, that program. Program we expanded it to a total of three right. behavioral health consultants. We started in internal medicine, and then very quickly placed uh, somebody in um, in the emergency room, okay. which kind of worked, kind of didn't. Okay. Um, and we also recruited patients from wound care. So right down down the hall, there was a wound care specialty care clinic. And we were able to, to do some warm handoffs for them as well. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so we really diversified it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, it was, it was a really, really wonderful initiative. So from that, yeah. uh, you moved to Chicago, I assume? Okay. I did, yes. And um, so in that move, you were, you're now doing something that you weren't doing even in your training. I wasn't, no, uh, I, there was, it, for many reasons, uh, for me and for my wife, the time was right to move to, to, to a larger city. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, f- interestingly enough, as I was preparing my own program uh, in Ohio, um, I was researching some uh, uh, charting forms, releases of information, uh, even how to organize our brochures. And of course, I was looking at the internet, who's doing it right, who, right, what are they doing? And I was able to find this one private practice that seemed to really have it together. Um, so I kind of shamelessly copied and pasted <laughs> some of their stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, Creative borrowing. Yes, yeah. you, can, you can call it that. And, and then, uh, funny enough, they had a job opening. Uh, so I applied and, uh, and they, they, they hired me. So tell us a little bit about uh, the group that you're working for now mm-hmm. and sort of like your basic model of engaging with uh, primary care clinics. So, so we are a medium-sized private practice. We have 14 full-time staff, including two uh, licensed clinical social workers, one um, marriage and family therapist, uh, 11 psychologists, and four students. We also have an APA-accredited internship. 
okay. uh, that we recruit three students for every year. Um, we we uh, also recruit postdocs um, depending on supervisor availability. Okay. And we are for profit, so we are a private practice. And uh, the idea was, uh, it seems like a lot of the uh, practices out there who are doing integrated care, either uh, large hospital systems or university healthcare systems or community mental health centers that get uh, funding either within the agency that subsidizes behavioral right. health uh, or grants, right. uh, either on a state or federal level, right? Right. Um, which is great. And I mean, if, if we can, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in uh, a single payer, uh, yeah. Medicare for all. I'm sorry if I'm getting a little bit political here. No, no, I think um, I think that really is the most optimal way to make sure there's space for everything and that we're really focusing on uh, on patient wellness and community wellness, right? Right. But in the current context that we all exist in, uh, there is a tricky element of, of profitability, right? Right. As long as you have a grant, great. Yeah. If that grant runs out, some of the programs that I've been familiar with uh, goes out. They struggle, yeah. right? So th- there's a big reimbursement challenge uh, and financial sustainability. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. earlier today at the presentation for the the University of California San Diego uh, yeah. folks, uh, I mean, it sounds like they really have a wonderful, wonderful program. Uh, I don't know if you were there, but at the end they were saying, you know, we are approaching the point of being revenue neutral. So, so there is still that acknowledgement that the program is being subsidized. So our idea was, well, can we approach this uh, from the other side, uh, from the, the private practice end, where we sustain ourselves, not necessarily in the effort of making money, uh, but in the effort of making this model work without sure. any additional right. assistance. Right? And, Nina, I think a lot of people would get, uh, like, profit and money and business is part of healthcare. Right. Uh, it's our biggest spender in the country. Uh, so it's, it's sometimes not helpful to consider behavioral health and behavioral health integration and mm-hmm. remove that conversation from business and, and healthcare economics. So what you guys right. are doing is sort of thinking about all of that. At least not in the current environment, right? Right, right. It just does not make sense. Yeah. So uh, our idea was let's, let's have a very strong team of health psychologists and uh, behavioral health providers who can then be inserted in an internal medicine or a family medicine or, or even a specialty care yeah. practice as contractors. Right? Okay. So uh, instead of the medical agency spending money and time building their own in-house uh, program and then recruiting and then uh, hiring their own staff, right. we, we become that uh, staff for them. For them right? Right. So we like to think of ourselves as, as somewhat of, 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 of a disruptor right. uh, of, that, of that model where we can come in and say, well, we can actually do what your future in-house program can do, but a little bit cheaper. Right. Or maybe right. a lot cheaper. Um, so do you give them, like, cost projections and other things uh, as part of your sales pitch? We do, yeah. And, uh, I mean, the idea is we really don't cost them anything directly. Uh-huh. Um, we do have different plans for uh, scaling up, and uh, um, those are some of our pre- um, proprietary models that, that sure. we use uh, when we when we do negotiations. But uh, our idea is we, we really don't directly cost them anything. Um, the only uh, cost that they incur is really that uh, we, we uh, take a little bit of space, right? Right. So um, they are giving up a little bit of that space where they could um, theoretically hire another medical provider. Provider, right. right, right, right. Uh, to a behavioral health provider right. who can do something different. Right, right. right. 
So once they, basically, I'm a clinic, you come to me and mm -hmm. say, hey, we are a group of psychologists who can really improve your primary care experience, mm -hmm. and we're going to give you a psychologist to work in your clinic. You really don't owe us anything, uh, and just give me some space. Mm -hmm. So what would you say the success rate of that strategy has been, and what are what's one story that sticks out to you that's been really cool and that you say, oh, that's... When I look at that story, that really has all the elements in it. Well, I think we have a couple of providers, uh, a couple of community partners that, that we work with right now. And uh, uh, so far, to, to a large degree, all of them have been a success, I think. Okay. Uh, we haven't always been successful when we've tried to negotiate with a new uh, community partner okay. uh, for many different reasons. Sure. Um, I think... Uh, um, we, we sometimes run into the same uh, conversations that you might if you are uh, a psychologist within the organization trying to start something integrated. Well, what is the, what is the purpose That's of this, right? right. Um, uh, do we really need that? Right. Um, we, we've had people tell us, well, we have, we have in-house uh, uh, psychologists who, who we don't want to bother by, by starting a partnership with you. In which case, we, we encourage them to, to try it on their own. Right. And if it works, great. Uh, but if it doesn't, we can... We can uh, step in. Step in. And then we've done that. And, and in each of these clinics are one of the 14 providers that are going in there and, and sort of working uh, a whole week, a couple of half days a week. So we try to be creative about that, right? right. So we, we have to manage cost. Right. Uh, so we try to expand clinical hours as much as possible. We try to do... Uh, um, Ten-hour days instead of traditional eight-hour days, okay. which gives our clinicians uh, a bit of flexibility because most of us work four days instead of five. Um, we also try to to cover on Saturdays as much as possible. Um, uh, we really uh, we mostly do uh, either half an hour or forty-five minute appointments, okay, uh, and we interrupt those with warm handoffs, right, which we do for free. So if the physicians can give us a call or come and knock on our doors. Uh, we interrupt our appointment, uh, uh, and then we can do a warm handoff, connect with the patient, okay. uh, and then that patient can then uh, be scheduled. Right, uh, right. So that's something that we give back to, uh, the, to, uh, to the, the medical agency, those free warm handoffs. Uh, we try to work with uh, the majority of the health insurances. I think that's one element in which we're very different from a traditional private practice. Uh, we really pride ourselves on being able to, to have that wide coverage. Uh, even with patients who uh, have Medicaid, which we don't currently work with, uh, we, we typically try to problem solve, provide a couple of free consults, uh, do some case management, um, okay. and then connect them with a community provider. So you guys are really sweetening the pot for them right. when, you, when you're doing the sort of the free warm handouts, but it sounds like there's a lot of generation that comes out of that in terms of actual appointments. Right, yeah, so, and then we, we operate a little bit more traditionally than with follow-up appointments where right. we really try to focus on short-term therapy uh, uh, as much as possible. We have a couple of um, uh, treatment maps that we use for the most common um, conditions that, that come in, for the most common concerns that patients come up with. Okay. Um, so we try to streamline the therapy process, but we also don't turn anybody away. So I know the, the, the conversation that generated a lot of discussion in mm -hmm. the listserv was when uh, you sort of had this medical team sort of say, hey, why would we give you space um, while we can fill a provider common right. thing that you would hear? Um, I'm, is that fairly common, or is, was that like an odd uh, case? Well, 
I guess, I mean, I can't tell you how common it is because we done uh, a community contact. We haven't done that much community right, contact. Right, right, okay. Uh, but it really struck us as, as a problem that is difficult to manage for us because that's one downside of coming as an outsider. Uh, they don't owe us anything. We're not right. part of them. Right. Um, they don't have an obligation to keep us around. Absolutely not, right. And I think that's, that's where the current state of the, the medical care system uh, really comes into play. If you have to consider profit, um, then maybe you do need that space to plug in another primary care provider who can generate more money than any behavioral health consultant, right? Right. If you, if you want to do integrated care, uh, I would say it makes sense to go with our model because it's going to cost you less. Right, right. But if you're going after uh, maximizing profit or cutting cost, then the, the calculation becomes different. And I think in the, in the, in the list of discussion, you kind of saw a couple of people acknowledge that, hey, I mean, if, if profit... Is, is what's driving uh, that practice, then, then you guys are kind of lost in that conversation. Right, right, because yeah. you, um, at least with the current reimbursement rates, a psychologist can never generate the same amount, the as, same a amount as, a, as a physician. So that's, that's the type of a conversation that is probably is the most challenging element of everything that we do. But despite that, uh, you've been successful. And uh, did things turn positive? But we're still going. It's been seven years. Yeah. Then we are entirely independent. So right. we've never uh, taken any grants. It's uh, amazing. And uh, <laughs> did, that, did that conversation with that one difficult system, did that turn positive? Or did you guys just leave it because they were It's still on developing. It's, it's still, still, still unfolding. Um, so you didn't give up on it? No. This, so that's, that's the thing. We never give up. Okay. <laughs> and we have an amazing team of people that, that are just, uh, I mean, Every single one of us has uh, taken a bit of a, of a pay cut to be part of, of, of our practice. Again, right. if you're in private practice, if you're catering to the highest uh, paying insurance plans uh, or only taking self-pay, you're, you're always going to make more money than, than right. if you're uh, casting a wide net, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think for ourselves, we have a slightly different mission. We want to be able to serve as many people as possible. We, right. Uh, I mean, again, I told you, I come from a community background. I do really see myself very strongly attached to the community. So uh, I want to make sure that we are providing as comprehensive and as as, as wide range of, of, of care to a wide right. range of people as possible. Yeah, and uh, the other thing that I hear you saying, even in that comment, is that, yes, in this sort of business market, you are focused on profit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are these value-based decisions that you guys are making, like taking a pay cut or other things to serve a larger... Right, nobody's group. getting rich off of this. Right. <laughs> you're saying, yeah, you're considering the for-profit... Um, uh, but we are sustaining ourselves and we're independent. That's very important. And, and I think there is, there is a space for, for uh, uh, psychologists, social workers, uh, licensed uh, uh, marriage and family therapists who don't necessarily fit in a larger system. I to be part of a group like this. Yeah, yeah who, who, who maybe appreciate a flatter structure of, of hierarchy, who maybe right. appreciate a little bit uh, freer uh, flow of information from yeah. up to down, right? Yeah. Um, appreciate the ability to, to set their own schedule. In terms of if people want to learn more about just you guys in general, is there a place where they can go? Is there a website that talks about uh, your service? Absolutely, yeah. We are at uh, pcpachicago.com. That's our website. Um, I'm also available uh, by, by email at btodorov at pcpachicago.com. That's btodorov 
I would love to chat with anybody and everybody about uh, what we what do. What you guys are doing? And what they do. I mean, again, that's that's why I, I really love being here at CFHA is the, the people yes. that you run into yeah, more yeah. than anything else. Absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You guys are doing some things that are not the norm. Uh-huh. Obviously, I, I don't think you met anybody here who's doing what you're doing. Uh, so far, and I haven't met anybody uh, that's doing what you're doing. Well, maybe so next year there'll be more of us. There'll be more of you yeah. guys next year. You know that. So this is how different conversations get started. Thank you for posting the question on the listserv, and thank you so much for making time on a Friday night at 8 p.m. <laughs> to sit and talk yeah. to me. I appreciate that. Thank you that for having me. It's a privilege. Absolutely. All right. Our thanks to uh, Boris Sidorov. Uh, is that the way you say it, uh, Deepu? Did I mess that up? Uh think that is correct i think that's correct i think that's what i what i i heard in the interview but uh our thanks to dr Todorov and our apologies if uh we've messed it up for us um, <laughs> but it, just a fascinating interview uh Deepu, well done on your part and and boris's part um just how they're really trying to solve this problem in a uh for-profit health system um right and you know, we'd, we all would love to see the system change in a way that would facilitate integrated care better and, and in general just make payment uh, a lot more streamlined. But in the meanwhile, we have folks like Boris and his company that are finding solutions uh, in the current system. What, what struck you the most, uh, you think, about, about talking with Boris in this? Because uh, this is different than your setting as well in family medicine, yeah. right? Yeah. I... Uh... You know, I, I think about these groups of physicians that have practice plans, and then uh, I forget what they're called, but uh, like there'll there'll be a group of internists who are part of this group, and then they're sort of farmed out to different hospitals. Um, and I've never thought of a group of mental health professionals doing that. And they, they've created a niche program. Uh, they've identified a unique market. Uh, they've really put a business plan together and brought in integrated behavioral health components into areas that may never get it. And they have uh, found a way to reasonably monetize the value of the work that we do, external to a clinic fully buying into any component of integration. Um, So that was interesting. And obviously the business part of it was interesting to me. Uh, You know, uh, warm handoffs are free. It's a way of sort of building business. Uh, and then follow-up appointments are done afterwards, and that goes to the uh, provider that uh, ultimately sees that patient. And so um, that's what struck me the most. Yeah, and it strikes me that they've been successful at convincing practices to utilize space. Um, as he mentioned, you know, space is at a premium in medical practices. They could yeah. monetize that space in, in other ways, and yet there seems to be... Um, at least in their instance, a reasonable return on investment that the uh, practice feels like they can garner um, from it, if not purely financial, at the very least uh, indirectly through the, the benefit that, that their patient population get from the, the care being provided in the setting and uh, maybe positioning them in the marketplace in a very different way than their competitors who don't have access right. to this. Absolutely. And I think the uh, listserv conversation that really started uh, our curiosity with Boris's practice was, I think he sent out a statement, uh, one of the potential providers 
basically said, oh, I can fill the clinic with another PCP and earn a lot more money than having one of you guys or something like that. And that's what really led to uh, connecting with Boris and then sort of uh, seeing him at CFHA and sort of planning for the interview. Yeah. Well, fascinating interview. There are so many people doing tremendous work um, in this area. Well, we are at the end here. Uh, Thank you to our listeners again for checking in with us. Uh, we have a great uh, series planned for you this year. Uh, we're going to be interspersing some of these clinical topics like you've heard today with um, a series of clinical topics that really focus on um, sort of the inspiration from it comes from the biopsychosocial model, uh, what we often now term the biopsychosocial spiritual model. And so we're going to be covering this year uh, thematically in our conversations um, some of the key areas, love, sex, sleep, uh, eating, relationships, wellness, um, wellness. These are these are going to be topics that are going to give focus to um, in the oh, and culture, uh, race and ethnicity, um, uh, giving specific attention to these as we also keep you up to date with the current events with regard to integrated care. So with all that said, thank you again for listening. Thank you to our podcast team, as usual, and is our tradition. Uh, we uh, take a moment at the end of the podcast to center ourselves with a closing thought. And uh, this one is inspired by uh, Grace, who's not here with us, but who reminded us of the, of the passing of, uh, of an important voice in the world. And so Deepu, uh, take us out with that voice. All right, and the voice is of Mary Oliver, who is a beloved poet, dubbed as the poet of the natural world. And she passed away at 83 on January 17th. In New York Times, they basically say her poems, which are built of unadorned language and accessible imagery, have a pedagogical and almost homiletic quality. So here is one of her poems um, of awe and wonder and, and some amount of uh, wrestling with meaning of death and passing away. We'll leave you with that. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg, between shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does toward silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life 
something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Thank you. What a great way to start 2019. Thanks for listening to the Integrative Care Podcast. We'll see you soon.